The scripture reading this morning is taken from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. This is our second sermon in the series on this minor prophet. And a very, uh, as you will see, I'm sure from what Shelton has to share today, a very difficult passage. Because it raises questions in the Christian faith that go all the way back to the beginning of time and challenge us in our understanding of God and his purposes in our lives. Uh, We're going to begin reading with Habakkuk 1, verse 12, and uh, we will continue until Shelton gets here. (laughs) So be prepared. (laughs) I am. (laughs) Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, the Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You My rock have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net and destroying the nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And then the Lord's answer. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him when With ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you have plundered many nations The peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed human blood 
You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. And welcome, Pastor Shelton. I tried to get up here earlier, you know. Last week I was walking down the hall and you heard the passage of Scripture. It's a, it's a little complicated, to say the least. And a guy came up to me and said, uh, said, Shelton, I figured when I heard you were preaching on Habakkuk that you must have lost a bet to somebody. You know, it's a little complicated book, as you heard. It's interesting, I didn't tell you this last week, that the prophet's name Habakkuk comes from a word that means embracing, or one who is embraced. And that's really the storyline throughout the book. It's about God who comes to Habakkuk in a time of distress. He's, he's distraught. You heard it as, as you hear the opening words of it. You know, oh Lord, how long do I have to call out to you? Violence and you don't hear. And so he's in, he's in, in absolute distress and in fear. And it's as though God comes to him and embraces him and takes him along this journey that will lead him to a place of faith and peace. That's where we get at the end of the book. But right now he's distraught. Things are bad. It's a low point in the history of Judah. There was a lack of justice. There was increasing immorality. There was ongoing wickedness. Habakkuk had been witnessing a society that literally was being torn apart in terms of its moral fabric. From the leaders all the way to the most common people, sin was rampant everywhere. It was a culture that was marked by immorality, greed, violence, injustice, hypocrisy, oppression, violence. Now this is Judah, the southern kingdom. It has dissolved that much. And so Habakkuk has been calling out to God, Lord, why don't you do something? Why don't you answer me? Why do you make me look at all of this? And then the Lord comes back and says, all right, I'm going to give you the answer, Habakkuk. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And then he tells it what it is. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places. 
not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are law to themselves and promote their own honor. How would you like to receive that news? How would you like that answer? Well, Habakkuk didn't like it, particularly when God told them how bad these people were. They were hostile, impetuous, haughty, fierce, ruthless, violent people. Now, if you were here last week, we dealt with the subject of the justice of God, that he must punish evil and wickedness, and the mercy of God. But now we come to Habakkuk's response today, and you heard Stan as he read it, starting in verse 12 there. And you can see what's going on in Habakkuk's mind here. He's saying, if God is sovereign and holy and just, how could he allow so much adversity, so much calamity, so much pain? How could he allow that to come on the people of Judah? Even deeper than that, he was saying, how could God, who is righteous and holy, how could he allow those pagan, evil Babylonians to become the agents of justice? He couldn't understand that. He was struggling to reconcile his theology of God. In other words, what he understood about God, the nature and characteristics of God, with what God was doing, the revelation God had revealed to him. And he's struggling with this. His questions weren't questions of doubt. They were sincere questions coming out of a deep faith seeking to understand the deep things of God. And so how does... Habakkuk respond. Well, he goes to the attributes and nature of God. First of all, to the holiness of God. He says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my holy one, we will not die. He calls God my holy one. You see, the holiness of God has to do with God's total separation from all sin, unrighteousness, Injustice and evil. In other words, God is so removed from that. He's separate from it. He's holy. He is the holy other one. And so he's struggling with this. He says, God, you're holy. I don't understand this. It's confusing how you could allow these evil people to be agents of your justice. Now, he understood clearly that that's what God had told him. O oh Lord, you've appointed them to execute judgment. O oh Rock, you've ordained them. He said, I get that. But I'm having a hard time understanding how that fits the nature of God. And then he turns to the purity of God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? There's a disconnect in his mind between what he knows about God and what God is doing them. How could God be sovereign and holy and pure and allow these wicked people? How could he do that to conquer the people of Judah? And it even became his distress became even more acute when he began to reason. Look at the last part of that. It says, It says, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Do you see what's in his mind? He's looking at it and he's saying, well, at least the people of Judah are more innocent than the people of Babylon. Now, let me raise this question again. Are they? No. Remember, 
They were doing the very same things. But in his mind, that's what he was thinking. They had been just as guilty as what the Babylonians were doing as well. And so Habakkuk is confused by all of these things. And so he's facing these these conundrums. It seemed to him that God was looking favorably on the wicked. That's what it seemed. It seemed that God allowed the wicked to swallow up those who seemed to be more righteous. And it seemed that there was no end to all of this. And then you get to the fundamental problem of Habakkuk. Habakkuk knew the attributes and nature of God. But when he looked at the circumstances around him, he was greatly troubled and he had doubts about God's actions. Now, let me pause here. Most of us who have lived long enough have faced overwhelming difficulties and some have gone through tragedies and heartbreak and pain. And we wonder, where is God in all of this? How could this be happening? God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to go on? I don't understand. That's what was going through Habakkuk. He can't put it together. He, he can't understand these things. And let me tell you something. Go, if you haven't been there before the end of your life, you probably will go there. Tragic loss of people that we love. Painful reversals in our lives. Overwhelming circumstances. And it just makes no sense. God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? Why don't you give me relief? Well, Habakkuk then... He goes up into the watchtower. Second chapter, verse one. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to the complaint. I'm going to climb up on the watchtower, God, and I'm going to wait and see what you're going to do. One of the commentaries that I used in this series was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' his commentary on Habakkuk, a little short commentary called From Fear to Faith. And in it he says, there's so much that we can learn from Habakkuk when we're facing overwhelming, deep troubles in our lives. And he says this, notice how, what Habakkuk did. First of all, you commit your problem to God. You detach yourself from the problem. You commit it to God. In a sense, what did Habakkuk do? He went up into the watchtower. He got out of the fray of the problem. You commit it to God. You take it to Him and you leave it with Him. And when we do that, let me tell you what happens. When we do that, we commit our problem to God. The focus shifts from the problem to the sovereign God who has the answer to the problem. See the difference? It shifts. 
God, I've given you the problem. And wouldn't you believe that Habakkuk did that with God? He didn't hold back anything, did he? And by the way, God wants us to be honest with him. He knows what's in our minds anyway. He wants us to be honest. God, this is what I'm wrestling with. My problem is, I give the problem to God and I go back and take it back. Don't you wish we could honestly, consistently do this? Commit our problem to God and we really detach ourselves from it? Okay, God, we trust you enough. We're going to give you this problem because we know that you're smarter than we are. You're bigger than we are. You're more powerful than we are. You know what you're going to do with this. Oh, I don't do that. I go back and keep taking it back again. We give our problem to God. And then secondly, expect an answer. If we prayed about it, expect God to give an answer. We need to look for answers. Sometimes God gives us an answer through reading His Word. Sometimes it's the still, small voice of the Spirit. Sometimes it's through the counsel of godly people. Sometimes it's through God providentially ordering circumstances in our lives. There are many ways He gives us God and, and gives us the answer. But the point is, we need to be looking for that answer in faith. Do you remember the book of James that says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he'll give it generously. But let him ask in faith. Expect answers from God. And then thirdly, the hardest one. Watch and wait. Watch and wait for the answer. Well, God's going to give Habakkuk an answer here. And we're going to look at two parts of the answer this morning. One of them is, uh, has to do with the certainty of his word. The second one is really the key issue in the whole book. So the certainty of his word first. So God comes to him now and says, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. That is one of the hardest things we're ever called to do, is to wait for it. But he says, Habakkuk, you can trust my word. What I tell you, you can trust. My word is certain. Write it in stone. Carve it in stone. The Babylonians are coming. That's, going to, that's true. They're coming. Be ready. It's going to happen because I ordered it. Make no mistake about it. Face up to the reality of it. You can trust my word. But then we get to the key issue of the whole book. And it comes in this verse. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. This is the crux And the very heart of the book of Habakkuk is right here. And this verse contains two contrasting realities. It speaks of the proud and the presumptuous who will not be able to stand. They will be brought low. But then it speaks of the righteous. And it says the righteous will live. They will live and they'll live by faith. Now, let me tell you what he's not doing. He's not saying, okay, the Babylonians, those are the puffed up ones. They certainly were. But they were not the only ones. 
Because you see, some of the people of Judah were just were just as guilty as the Babylonians were. What he's saying is this. Those who become haughty, faithless, trusting in themselves, presumptuous, they're going to be brought low. But the righteous will live by faith. It's not what people group you're in or what nation you're in. The issue is faith. The righteous will live by his faith. Whereas the arrogant, proud person will reap judgment because he is faithless. Now, the rest of this chapter deals with God's judgment on the Babylonians. We're going to come to that next week. But this raises a basic question at this point. Here's the question. Central question to the Christian faith. How, then, is a person saved? How then is a person saved? Well, the answer is right here in Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by his faith. It's the simple answer of the gospel. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ our alone. He is our only hope and the only means of deliverance and life. And the New Testament confirms this. In fact, I want to look at three passages in the New Testament that give commentary on this passage in Habakkuk. The first one is found in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness, please pay attention to these words, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is from first to last, just as it is written. He quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Now, you see what Paul is doing in Romans. He's saying that the fundamental biblical basis of the gospel is Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. And he's saying that the only way to true righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. Because there are two kinds of righteousness. There's self-righteousness. And by the way, that is the religion of the man on the street. Self-righteousness says this. I have to work really, really hard at earning God's favor. I have to keep the law. I have to do this. I have to do It's all about morality. It's all about religion. It's about what I'm doing in my feeble efforts to make God like me because I know I've got some unrighteousness in me. I know I've got some sin in me. And I've got to work real hard to be good enough for God to accept me. That, my friends, is what the vast majority of people out there think. Self-righteousness. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about another kind of righteousness, imputed righteousness. I think I said this last week. The old theologians called it alien righteousness. Now, we immediately think about little men from Mars when we hear that, right? That's not what they were talking about. Alien righteousness meant a righteousness that came from the outside, not from inside of us. 
What righteousness is he talking about here? What is this righteousness from God? It is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Jesus, who was perfect in every way, without spot, without blemish, totally sinless, perfect, totally righteous. The righteous will live by his faith. You see, through faith, that righteousness of Jesus is imputed or credited to us. So that when God looks at you and God looks at me, you know what he sees? He sees the perfection of his son. Is that not? That's almost too hard to believe, isn't it? When he looks at you, he doesn't see all of your sins. He doesn't see all of your flaws. He doesn't see all of your failures. He sees the righteousness of Jesus in you. And he looks at you in the very same light that he looks at his own son. That's the righteousness that has been imputed to us. And then Paul's going to go on. That's the basis of the gospel. He's going to go on in Galatians. And he's talking there again about justification, a whole section in Galatians about justification. Remember, justification is that Martin Luther said the church stands or falls on the doctrine of justification. In other words, he said there's some things we can disagree on as Christians, but not this one. Justification is that declarative act of God. When on the basis of the perfect sacrificial work of Jesus... God forgives us of our sins and imputes that righteousness we've been talking about to us. And so the question that Paul is wrestling with in Galatians is this. How then are we justified? Is it by works of the law or is it by faith? Where does he go to appeal? Habakkuk. Look what he says. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. Is that clear? Is that clear? You, you, you can't ever earn it. You can't be moral enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't be good enough, no matter how hard you try. You see, no one is justified God by the law because it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, one more, and it's in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer to the Hebrews is dealing with people who are going through times of persecution. And he's encouraging them. He's saying to those people who are going through the times of persecution, you have to be patient. Jesus is going to come. He's going to make everything right. But you have to be patient. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And that's what he's saying to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you have to be patient. I am going to deal, I'm going to deal with all of this evil. Don't worry about it, Habakkuk, because I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to eventually make all things right. And I'll tell you this, the wicked will be dealt with at the right time. And the righteous will truly live because of his faith in Christ. All things will eventually be made right by God. Doesn't that encourage you that there is a day when things are going to be made right? And that's what God's saying to him. Well, that brings me to 
the application this morning. I want to give you three points of application. First of all is this. Remember that the underlying theme of the book is the sovereignty of God, that God is actively working throughout human history. He has a purpose and a plan for human history, and he has a purpose and a plan for your life. I promise you that. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And you know what? He's working. Sometimes it's all behind the scenes. Marianne, I just went through the book of Esther in our quiet time. You know, God's name's not ever mentioned in the book of Esther. Not one time. Oh, but you see God at work. Providentially orchestrating things. See, God is sovereign. Second thing is, we don't always understand the ways of God. In Isaiah we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. In other words, there are just certain things we'll never fully understand, the side of heaven, and we just have to accept it. We'll never figure it all out. And then in Romans... Paul's dealing with the thorny issue of the Jews and the Gentiles and how all of this happened, how they fit. And he finally gets to this point where he throws his hands up and he just goes into this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. There are things you will not understand. Who has known the mind of the Lord? The things we won't understand. But there is this that we know. But the righteous will live by his faith. Now, I want to end with asking you three questions this morning. First of all, do you believe that God is sovereign over all things? And that he has a plan and purpose for your life. Do you really believe that? Look at what the scripture says. In him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out. Look at that next word. What does it say? You mean the calamities of life? You mean the tragedies of life? You mean the pain of life? You mean the uncertainties of life? The things that go beyond us? The things we can't comprehend? The things we can't figure out? Yes. God takes all of those things and brings them in conformity with the purpose of His will. Second question. Do you know how much God loves you and what He's done for you? Paul writing in Romans says this. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? Do you see that? Whenever you're going through those times where you may doubt the love of God, look at the cross. God did not spare His Son. He didn't withhold Him. He didn't hold Him back. He didn't spare Him. He gave Him up. Gave Him up to what? The cross. The greatest evidence of all 
of the love of God for your life is Jesus Christ on the cross. You ever start doubting, look at the cross. Third question. Are you willing to trust God no matter what? Most all of this at one time or another have probably learned these verses. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's simply another way of saying the righteous will live by faith. Trust. We're going to sing in just a minute a little hymn, simple little hymn. And it's a hymn that Louisa Stead wrote. Louisa Stead was a native of Dover, England. She came to the United States with her family in 1871. And while she was here, she attended a Christian conference at Urbana, Ohio, And when she was there, she heard a missionary speaker calling people out for the need of missionaries to go to China. Louisa was deeply moved by this. She goes down front, signs her name up, really wants to go serve, serve Christ on the mission field in China. But to her sadness, she was rejected because of her health. Some time passed and she ended up marrying her husband, Mr. Steed, and then God blessed them with a precious little girl whose name was Lily. Louisa would say, I've never been happier in all of my life. I have a wonderful husband who loves me, a husband who is with me, a husband that I know cares deeply for me. And I have this precious child, and she is so adorable. I couldn't be any happier than this. It was a summer day in Long Island, and the family decided they'd go out to the beach, take a picnic. And so they were there. Louise is looking at her little family, looking at her husband, looking at, at uh, little Lily, and could not be any happier in all the world. And something caught her attention out in the surf. She saw a boy out in the surf who obviously was having trouble. And she pointed him out to her husband. <clears throat> and with that, Mr. Stade ran out into the water And tried to help the boy. But the undertow was so great. And this was a larger boy. And he was fighting. And both of them went under. And both drowned. Her little world turned upside down. The days ahead were filled with darkness and sorrow and grief. She sought comfort from the scripture. And she found it. She loved hymns. And she would often sing hymns to bring her comfort. But to make matters worse, it was very difficult times financially. They literally were living hand to mouth. She had a hard time providing for a little family. And one day the cupboard was empty. There was no food in it. They had nothing to eat. And she pulled a lily off to the side and she said, Lily, we have to trust God to provide. And so the two of them got down on their knees and they turned to God and said, God, we have no food. We don't know what we're going to do, but we trust you. Next morning, she goes to the door 
and opens the door, and there's a basket full of all kind of provision and an envelope that had enough money in it to buy Lily a new pair of shoes. And Louisa pulled Lily over, and she said, Lily, we trusted God to provide, and he did. And it was that instant incident that led her to write this little poem. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust you. Precious Jesus, Savior friend, and I know that you are with me and you will be with me. To the end, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, we come to you in faith. Some here who are facing overwhelming circumstances and disappointments and heartbreak and on and on and on. And things may be that we don't understand. And like a backup it just doesn't make sense to us. But Habakkuk had to learn that lesson that the righteous lives by faith. And that's the lesson we need to learn. That regardless of the circumstances, no matter what they look like. That we can trust you. Because you have a plan and purpose. And so I pray this morning that you would rekindle our faith. That we would trust you and prove you o'er and o'er and know that you will be with us, will be with us even to the end. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.